Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Welcome, everyone, to another Wednesday evening uh, Clear Mountain Q&A with uh, your host today, Ajahn Nisipo. That's me with a hoarse voice. I have a little bit of a cold, um, so you'll have to forgive me for that. As many of you know, this is our chance usually to uh, talk in a bit more of an intimate live stream setting and uh, followed by a Zoom session and uh, people should feel free to post questions that they'd like to discuss in the chat but i wanted to seed the conversation by speaking to something that's come up for me these past few years um, and has seemed like a relevant issue to speak to in more detail and that's the fifth precept that against taking intoxicants I find these Wednesday evenings can be a useful opportunity to delve into certain specific parts of the teaching in a bit more of a focused way than the Saturday talks allow. So I thought I'd just lead with some reflections on the fifth precept and we can continue into a discussion of that or any other questions those on this live stream have. So feel free to type into the chat. Many of you will know that the Buddha recommended all of his disciples hold five basic precepts along with taking the three refuges. So the precepts are one commits to refrain from taking the life of any living being one refrains from taking that which is not given, from engaging in sexual misconduct, from lying, and from taking intoxicants. And the Buddha described these five as great gifts, mahadana, in that they are the gift of fearlessness to those around one, those around one know that you will not hurt them, that you will not steal, uh, engage in sexual misconduct, etc. And where the first four are genuinely unwholesome in and of themselves, uh, and the fifth to some extent, the fifth is also relevant in that it enables the other four more so. If one takes intoxicants, then one is more liable to break another precept. And yet, at the same time, as many of us approach practice uh, as lay people, the, or when I was a lay person and those who are still lay people, the question comes up, what about just one glass of, of wine? What about 
a small amount of an intoxicant that doesn't actually lead to loss of mindfulness. And this is actually how the precepts are given in many circles is it's one refrains or determines to refrain from taking intoxicants or drinking or smoking to the point of intoxication. But this isn't how uh, it's come down to us in the tradition. When monastics give this precept, although obviously people can take the precept in whatever way they want, um, it's, it's up to one. But how it's held generally and encouraged in our tradition is the taking of the precept to refrain from intoxicants completely. And that meaning not even one glass of wine. The question then comes up, why? I mean, if it's just one glass of wine, why is it significant? And I think there's a lot hidden in that question. So I wanted to go into it. First, perhaps by referencing a sutta, which I really love. It's called the Simile of the Quail, Majjhimanakaya 66. And in it, the Buddha is admonishing a monk who has refused to give up eating after midday. The monastic rules indicate that we can only eat before midday, between dawn and noon. So the Buddha, after uh, speaking to this monk, says, if a bhikkhu is unwilling to give up a small thing, though he sees it as trifling, though I've told him, that small thing becomes a great fetter, even as a rotting vine would become a fetter to a small quail, and it would be unable to grow, get free. And he shows disrespect to me and to his fellows in the holy life devoted to training. He then says, one who easily gives up a large thing um, because I've said so, or uh, that becomes not a fetter to him, even as a old leather strap would be easily snapped by an elephant. So in this sutta, the small fetter, that small, uh, or the, the small thing that one would not give up is compared to the rotting creeper constraining the quail. It's too weak to break, though a man could break the rotting creeper with his hands. And the thing that one is willing to give up is not a fetter because, and compared to this old leather cord that one snaps as an elephant would. And this is significant because when one begins to practice more, you do notice that certain issues in your life, no matter how small, take up a huge amount of mental space. Somehow your, uh, the mechanics and motions of self, of aversion, of greed, of delusion, attach and fixate on some things. And 
often those things, though externally they seem very small, have a huge amount of uh, grasping tied into them and self and arrogance. They are the perfect domain and the largest domain for practice, though externally they seem like nothing. And to begin just by saying that there's plenty of people on this live stream, I'm sure, who will drink a glass of wine. It's not the end of the world. You can still practice well. But I rather wanted to speak to the point that there is a difference between holding this precept as one glass of wine or two, just not to the point of intoxication, and saying, I'm not drinking anymore at all. And for me, this fifth precept, um, there's a few ways to talk about it. One is to point to it in line with the sutta as the white flag of surrender. That's often how I see it, is so often we come to Buddhist practice from the standpoint and the vantage point of modern semi-secular uh, Buddhist aligned moderns or practitioners, meditators. And there's a comfort in holding the teachings, the precepts, and our practice in a way that's comfortable and in line with our previous experience and negotiating how we approach things. And for me, there's a point where a real level of surrender plays in and just saying, you know what? It's a glass of wine. It doesn't matter if I don't care about it, then why do I care about it? You know, and saying, okay, I won't, I won't drink it. It might not be the biggest thing, but it's what the Buddha said to do. And that surrender is not small. It's just a glass of wine, but it's not just a glass of wine. Uh, that binary of the heart turning towards or completely giving oneself to this teaching, to the refuges, is, is very significant. And I think it can be sometimes embodied and pointed to in that one motion of of heart saying, I will hold these five completely purely. And um, that's in some ways not in line with the usual ethic and logic and drive towards comfort. But if it's just a glass of wine, what's the big deal? Give it up. And the other things to sort of flesh out the landscape around this fifth precept is just to say a glass of wine isn't always just a glass of wine. Um, in the sense that, and this is timely in uh, anticipation of Thanksgiving dinner, perhaps tomorrow, but um, when you're a kid, I, I remember noticing when my parents um, or my, my dad would have a glass of beer. He, he doesn't drink anymore, but I noticed, and I noticed the change in him, and I didn't like it. When you're a kid, think of how you could see when your parents had a bit of alcohol, even a small amount, and you do notice a difference. The energy changes significantly. Um, the second thing to think of is when the Buddha was asked why he held some of his ascetic practices or Mahakasapa was asked, he said, out of compassion for future generations. Uh, 
And this recollection that the Buddha, for example, dwelled in the forest, not because he needed it for his own practice, he was enlightened, but because he saw it as a gift of his example to others in the future. And similarly, though perhaps you can stop at one glass of wine, how many in the world cannot? And how difficult for those people with addictive personalities, with tragedy in their lives, looking for escape, to live in a world where there's no example of anyone who doesn't drink. That's just an expectation as you go to a party and you, you drink. And how beautiful to have a few examples of people who don't do that. How is that a bad thing? And it's also a recollection that we're not aiming our lives towards a modicum of comfort. A well-adjusted middle-class life is a paltry goal. If we're here to give a gift, to surrender to this practice, then not only is giving this up a chance of surrender, but it's, it's a gift to those who don't have the same restraint that you might. And you don't know who those people are. I mean, maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's someone close to you. Maybe they need to see someone who doesn't drink. And you just think of the ills that come from alcohol. It is, you know, and this obviously applies to all intoxicants, but alcohol being the one that gets the free pass so often, uh, it, it does such damage, such damage. And it's okay not to validate it. It's, it gets a free pass and it should not. Um, the other recollections uh, around this, I think, are also that uh, we want to be asked to sacrifice. To sacrifice means to sanctify. And how we make our lives sacred is by giving up something. Um, so maybe it's not something we feel we quote unquote need to give up, but there's something powerful in the act of offering offering this to the Buddha and remembering that. Uh, I think they did a survey once, uh, or they, they took a vote. I think it was in a Norwegian or Scandinavian country, um, or no, sorry, Norway, <laughs> or some, some country in Northern Europe. And they were trying to decide how to get rid of nuclear waste. And there's two options on the ballot. And I think one of them was, you know, paying a certain amount of money and getting it put elsewhere. It was sort of out of the purview of these people, of the population. And the other was, I think, finding a way to have it buried in the mountains nearby. And some people would have to give up land and they would actually have to give up a little more for this solution. And if I remember correctly, more people voted by a, a huge margin for that option because I think, and I think there's a deep psychology behind this, we want to sacrifice something. We know that the metric of happiness and just seeking our own happiness in a cheap sense is a paltry metric and orientation of the heart in light of the tragedy, which is, which can be life and which life is riddled with. And to give, to sacrifice reminds us that the proper orientation of life is purpose and sanctity, restraint and, and giving up that sustains ones through, through tragedy. And to sacrifice these little things is a recollection of that. I also think this fifth precept is interesting in that um, I know a Buddhist teacher whose arms are covered in Buddhist tattoos. And when I asked about them, he said, look, they're a bit like fishing hooks. I 
people see them and I know that they're Buddhist and they, they know I'm Buddhist and they ask about them. And then we get into a conversation. They, they start, they connect me with other practitioners. Similarly, if you're not drinking, people will ask about it. And it actually might be a real entry into genuine conversation with someone who you want to have a conversation with. If you want to avoid the awkwardness of not having uh, something to drink, then it's useful to come in with some uh, strategies. So first of all, one can um, uh, basically just have a glass of something in your hand if you really just don't want to talk about it. But if people do ask why you aren't drinking, then saying that you're, you're not drinking in solidarity with some friends who aren't drinking, and um, they don't have to be alcoholic friends, but they can just be um, your other Buddhist friends, they can be me. I'm not drinking. You're in solidarity with me. That's okay. And uh, that's actually a very powerful line. And it's, it's accurate. It's true. Um, so finding some Buddhist friends who are also committed to the fifth, holding the fifth precept and, uh, and referencing them. And finally, in the scope of samsara, if we really look at what it means to be trapped in an endless round of rebirth, as the Buddhist worldview says we are, to have a brief moment as a human um, with this faculty of mindfulness to practice, it is sacred. There is, um, it's sacred. And there's something about refraining from compromising that quality of mindfulness, even a little bit that acknowledges it as sacred. And when you talk about the sacred, I think there's a philosopher that said, look at what people hold sacred and you'll find uh, lack of logic rampant. Um, sorry, my stomach's growling. And um, I think one has to hold that quote carefully, but what I do think it means is there's something about the idea of the sacred which is almost an a priori starting point for a life and which doesn't always make complete sense in terms of worldly metrics and logic. And so when we talk about mindfulness as sacred in a way that's hard to understand from the perspective of a modern secular worldview, that implies something much deeper than we, we usually think of it as mindfulness. This quality of awareness is holy. It's sacred. It's, unbelievably precious and to protect it is worthwhile. Okay, I think I covered most of that. Um, you know, the, the one other thing I, I would like to say is, for most of our lives, a sort of secular approach to morality really does serve well enough. Uh, we don't need to, you know, believe in rebirth, for example, to hold good precepts. Um, most of us are doing a decent job uh, and of living life in a fairly ethical way. But I think it's very informative to read about times when things get hard and a really beautiful, or sorry, not beautiful, terrible, terrifying book I read several years ago was the Gulag Archipelago speaking about the, uh, it's a, first-hand account of the Russian gulags 
the concentration camps. And Schultenitzen, who wrote it, describes the few people who were moved, moved through these unbelievably brutal environments, seemingly untouched. And they were these, largely they were the Christians because they had a system of morality which was filled with bright lines. Most of the time we can get back by with these sort of soft lines of morality in regular life. They, they seem to be good enough. I mean, not as dedicated Buddhist practitioners, but most people in the world do sort of navigate that way. But when things get hard, it means a lot to have very clear lines that are immovable. And these five precepts are that. And there is an internal integrity which comes from holding all five perfectly. When you start saying, well, the first four I'll hold perfectly, and but that last one, maybe a glass of wine is fine. Fair enough, but if you, when things might get hard, or even looking at the possibility that they might get hard, there's something to that strength of heart knowing that I hold these five irrevocably, even if society collapses, even if you know, things get really bad. I will not kill, not steal, etc. Not not take intoxicants. So I think there's something about uh, dire straits and dire circumstance which really reveal the preciousness of having an uncompromised uh, uniform structure of morality that is bright and solid. And what I've always loved about the Theravada is that it has teeth um, these bright lines are bright and clear for a reason. And to say that you can expand that fifth precept out to encompass, um, you know, the ethic of it outwards to encompass entertainment. Um, I believe Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, prohibit version of it prohibits horror movies. But the farther you expand it out, the more you also have to compromise it a little bit. If it includes entertainment, then, you know, when you're with your family, maybe a movie is actually the appropriate thing to do. And so the precept gets soft. So by constraining the precepts to these very clear lines, the Buddha gave us things we could keep perfectly. Um, obviously, we want to expand the ethic out as far as we can, but keeping the core uh, seed clear and solid is important. And also, many of you will know that sutta of the bhikkhu smelling a flower uh, and a deva coming down and admonishing him. And the, the bhikkhu says, why are you admonishing me? I was just smelling a flower. The, the deva accuses him of stealing the flower scent. And the deva says, uh, look, there are other people doing worse things, but or the bhikkhu says, why aren't you sort of speaking to those doing worse things? I'm just smelling a flower. And the Davis says, what's the use in kind of trying to clean a dirty diaper? You're a clean white cloth. Don't compromise yourself like this. And something like that. And the bhikkhu says, thank you for admonishing me. Please do so in the future. And the Davis says, what am I, your servant? And the bhikkhu says, sorry, I, I'll, I'll take care of it. And I love that sutta. And it's interesting to quote because people start being really worried about smelling flowers. But I think what it indicates is as we practice, the sila becomes more refined and these small things do compromise it. And you do notice more the effect on your mind of drinking um, or smoking uh, pot, etc. 
And um, so it's, it becomes more apparent. Um, and that Bhikkhu, for example, perhaps he was having deep concentration and even a small distraction in that case can really be quite, uh, quite, quite disruptive. So that's plenty. We can go to questions now. And to finish with saying, I'm not, uh, you know, trying to guilt anyone into anything. Um, people will have glasses of wine and you can still practice well, it's okay. But I think understanding that there are is a difference between these two ways of holding that fifth precept and that the Buddha was, and tradition is, clear about the sanctity of this faculty of mindfulness, which is so precious. And there are reasons for drawing a clear line of surrender um, to the Buddha and to the kind of ethos behind it. All right. Please feel free to type your questions into the chat. And yeah, hopefully this is timely for uh, Thanksgiving. Matt says, ironic that monks invented beer. <laughs> yes. Those weren't Buddhist monks, though, to be fair. Um, those, yeah, those weren't Buddhist monks. There is a, the precept, monastic precept against drinking. The origin story is there was a monk who I think uses his psychic powers to defeat a Naga, a dragon, basically. Um, he, the Naga breathes fire at him, and then he uses his psychic powers to basically spray fire at the Naga or something. And then the lay people all have a lot of faith and give a bunch of alcohol to him in his alms bowl. And he falls asleep and the Buddha comes across him and tries to wake him up along with sort of a retinue of monks. And he just turns around and points his feet at the Buddha. And the Buddha says, monks, didn't this venerable just defeat a Naga? And the monk said, yes, he did. And the Buddha says, does it look like he could even defeat a newt now? And the monks say, no, venerable sir. And the Buddha says, didn't this venerable one show me respect when he was sober? And the monks say, yes. And he says, now, does it look like he respects the Tathagata? And the monks say, no, venerable sir. So that's our origin story with the precept, with the fifth precept. Ajahn, this talk has me thinking of the eight precepts. Why are they called higher? So the eight precepts add on uh, not engaging in entertainment uh, or beautification and adornment, not laying on higher luxurious sleeping places, and third, uh, not eating at inappropriate times, namely afternoon. Those precepts are called higher, and the Buddha did encourage his lay disciples to hold them during the uposita or moon days once every two weeks. And I think holding them once a week for us, uh, an uposa today, is really quite important and beautiful, and we encourage it. They're called the higher because those latter three have less to do with a strict morality and more to do with just refinement of practice. When you don't eat afternoon, you don't get entangled in dinner plans, and you can really, your mind is also light and buoyant for the evening meditation. When you don't sleep on a higher luxurious sleeping place, um, you wake up on the ground on a thermarest. And, and actually the letter of the law in this case is, is significant. It, it really does make a difference to wake up on the ground on a thermarest or a pad 
rather than on your bed. So not only is it a devotion to wakefulness, but it's a recollection of what you're doing. And the third of not engaging in beautification, adornment, or entertainment is a simplification. So they're just a means of focusing yourself on practice, and that's why they're called the higher. Okay. Morality. Is it reasonable for lay people to get eight precepts for life for the same reasons you are giving for the five? Not for the same reasons. The five are, the Buddha called them, said that one who doesn't keep the five precepts digs out the roots of their humanity. The five are considered basics, prerequisites, or a foundation for staying in the human rebirth, basically. This is the basis of our humanity. And they have a very moral element. The eight, those higher three, as I said before, are more about refinements of practice. Some do choose to take them on as a reminder of their focus and orientation in life and of their practice, though. Um, I find they can be quite hard for people to take on unless they really have oriented their life around meditation and practice. Um, it can just be awkward never to be able to eat dinner with people, um, unless you're a monk where no one eats dinner around us, um, or to not be able to ever watch a movie with your family. There, But some people do. I'd say once a week is, is definitely good. Um, setting aside one day a week where at least, you know, you just have it be your uposa today. You um, tell people you know that you won't be um, answering your phone that day, you turn off, you turn it off, or in the afternoon at least, um, and you take the, the day for practice. Um, there is an interesting model, a different one, of, but some, some lay disciples do take the eight. It is, it is possible. There's an interesting alternate model of the five precepts with the third held as celibacy. I believe there's a non-returner in the suttas who holds them that way too. So the five, but celibate. I'm sorry, my stomach is really growling here. Question, would other commonly used mood altering substances such as caffeine and nicotine be considered intoxicants for the purpose of the fifth precept? No, not in our conception. I know some traditions that hold tobacco or nicotine but uh, my sense is it, it doesn't have the same potential of danger and it doesn't compromise mindfulness in the same way, neither with caffeine. Um, those can be interesting things to give up. Um, and certainly monastics in my tradition don't smoke uh, tobacco, um, but there were arahants who, do, who did smoke tobacco. Uh, in Thailand, it was actually, there wasn't the same taboo against smoking cigarettes and for a long time, and it was quite common, um, that or betel nut. So, a slight stimulant is not included in this, but I would say that if you're meditating quite a lot, you will notice the effect on your body and um, looking after one's body would necessarily mean looking after one's caffeine intake and giving up smoking, probably. Is there a perspective on the consumption of mocktails or non-alcoholic replacements? Even in the absence of the intoxicant, is that still in a symbolic sense of gray area? Hmm. No, I think that would be okay. Um, I mean, especially if a skillful means if you're out with your friends and they're, you know, drinking, um, 
you know, you got drawn in. I mean, it's best to just avoid such situations when you can, but maybe a skillful means is to order a mocktail when they're ordering cocktails. And then it's not, you know, there's places for reducing the friction of this precept at times. Um, yeah, so I think a mocktail would be okay. Um, but also if you, you know, it depends also if you want to and feel you're in a situation where you can hold it as in a, a bit more of a, a clear way and just order a, order a Coke instead, that would be fine. But it's not a moral issue in that case. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, it's interesting. People who haven't dealt with alcoholic um, family members or others, I, you know, I mean, I, I haven't largely, to be honest. I just, so many in our community have. And um, it is, it's a, it's a scourge. And way more people have these addictions in their lives than, than I think are very public about it. It's a hidden shame for so many. And I've been so impressed by the honesty and humility of people who've gone through the recovery process but life is hard and addiction is harder to avoid. It's interesting to see how, as you know, the years go by, what can be just a fun thing to do with friends really crystallizes or crusts into a habit. And by the time one is 31 or 32, there is this addiction at work. Ajahn, what is the difference between having strong craving and having alcoholism addiction? I have 28 years of recovery in AA, but I see the strong pulls of craving towards other things, especially in times of pain or stress. I think some people have somewhat addictive personalities. Um, I don't know what makes that the case. I mean, certainly there's personality types in Buddhist thought of greed, hatred, and aversion. Sorry, greed, aversion, delusion. Um, and I would imagine greed types can lean into addiction more. I think it's interesting to look at what an addictive drive actually is motivated by, because sometimes it's not the sensual pleasure so much as desire to not be, uh, annihilation, a binge annihilates one. So really I found with a lot of addictive types, myself included, there never really was a choice to give up the side of myself that wants to pour itself into one thing completely. My choice was to replace an addiction to process or substance with an addiction to, to Dharma. And it's, it's not addiction, obviously, it's, it's different um, because it's not based on the same sort of craving, but rather that part of me had a similar drive to pour myself into something. And that stream moves very easily towards sensual fulfillment and intoxicants. And so being very clear to steer it towards, towards Dhamma and practice. And what it means is for someone like that, you really might, the proper orientation to you towards practice might be complete and utter and um, wholehearted. And that might be the one thing that really sustains against another sort of addiction. But the craving, 
towards chocolate, et cetera. I mean, it is at its heart, the same craving likely, and that will likely be something you have to work with over time. I've heard an interesting term for addiction as you're an addict if your use of a substance harms those around you. I thought that was very interesting. Um, don't totally know how it applies here, but to say, yes, it, it's the same route. Um, but, uh, that's also how we operate in the world is trying to find happiness um, and push away from what makes us unhappy and tuning out, you know, what makes us unhappy. And uh, that will project onto many things in our lives. I'm curious about caffeine as well. Don't worry that you can still drink coffee. It's all right. Just be uh, restrained about it. In social situations, I found that for me personally, simply saying I don't drink without trying to explain or justify is the most effective way to prevent people from offering me alcohol. Actually, that's a great piece of advice that really might do it. I don't drink. Works as a monk. Thank you for that, Adam. I find it fascinating that David Lynch, the horror-laden film director, is also a huge proponent of transcendental meditation. Yeah, so I think this may have been in response to me saying that Thich Nhat Hanh has expanded the precept against intoxicants to not only encompass entertainment, I believe, um, but also uh, horror movies. And I think those the five mindfulness trainings by Thich Nhat Hanh, you can Google them. They're a beautiful way of expanding these precepts. And I think they can be held as another teaching as long as you still hold the five in their original form clearly and cleanly. That's interesting though. I mean, Keanu Reeves is Buddhist and I believe he makes some pretty violent movies too. So congrats, Rick. I'm going on 10 years. It's inspiring to hear 28. Yes. Anamotana to so many here who are uh, working with recovery. It's, uh, it's also especially, I just find people's willingness that recover people who've gone through recovery or are in recovery their willingness to share and just be honest, it, it's so impressive. Uh, there seems to be this embarrassment um, for some people about saying that they are, they're an addict or something. And I just had the exact opposite reaction. Every time I hear someone speak to what they've struggled with, it just gives me such faith in them. Um, that level of humility and surrender. How can I meet the former fashion advisor to the Queen of Thailand, who you referred to as an enlightened being? Could you give me the details on how to go about meeting her? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex. Um, so I'd heard from a teacher about a, not in, well, one level of enlightenment. Um, when he was referencing, some people ask, what would happen to a second life stream enterer? So if someone achieves stream entry in a previous life and then they're reborn, what would they look like? And one teacher I had referenced a Meiji um, who was born and became the queen of Thailand's fashion advisor. And she loved refined things. She'd go off to operas in Paris and more. And then one day she went to a monastery and received a teaching from a, a senior Thai Kruba Ajahn, uh, a well-respected teacher. And Afterwards, he came up to her and said something like, um, oh, you should come here and, 
you know, come the next time I give a talk, it'll be good. And she said, I don't want to do that. I want to go to your monastery and ordain. And um, so she did. And she gave up all of her wealth, just got in this small hut um, with like one change of clothes or something. And it was, there's a great story of the queen of Thailand going to visit her after she'd done this and sort of just being blown away by this sudden shift of simplicity. Um, so I think that's who you're referencing, Alex. And I'm really sorry. I actually don't know where she is. Um, yes. And, uh, I, I have asked that teacher about it, um, recently, but wasn't able to get a response. I'm really sorry. Um, yeah. And I don't feel like I'm able to ask him right now. Um, a really beautiful Mechi community I know is the one near Ajahn Jayasaro. Uh, there's a wonderful Mechi there named uh, Mechi Panyasiri, although she doesn't give regular teachings. Um, but I suspect if this other Mechi uh, is less well-known, she may be kind of hidden away. Um, anyways, I, I did, uh, I know you sent an email and I was about to respond to that. And if I find out, I will let you know. I'm sorry. No, thank you, Joseph. This is off topics, but are monks supposed to cross their arms when giving talks? That's all right. Um, we're supposed to teach the Dhamma respectfully. And there's just some beautiful framing around that. There's nothing explicitly against crossing one's arms, but there's just some beautiful things to keep in mind. Um, one is we're only supposed to teach Dhamma to those showing respect, um, who we have to be sitting on a higher level. There's a famous sto story of King Ashoka was being converted to Buddhism uh, after he'd you know destroyed um, the neighboring empires and he you know one of the ap apocryphal stories probably because there's many stories of his conversion is he sees a novice and asks him you know the novice is so peaceful that he asks him to come up to the throne room and teach the dhamma and the novice insists on sitting on the throne to teach it because he needs to have the dharma respected um and king ashoka is so impressed by that that he converts uh and just that ethic of respect and care um Another beautiful recollection I love, it's called Like the Moon, this sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Kasapa Samyutta. And it says that one, a bhikkhu may teach the Dhamma with the thought, may these people hear the Dhamma from me. Having heard the Dhamma from me, may they gain faith in me. Having gained faith in me, may they show, give offerings to me or show their respect in me, something like that. Such a bhikkhu is not fit to teach the Dhamma. Another bhikkhu may teach the Dhamma with the thought, Having heard the Dhamma, may the, oh, the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading onwards to be experienced individually by the wise. Having heard the Dhamma, may they practice the Dhamma rightly. Such a bhikkhu teaches the Dhamma just out of respect for the Dhamma, out of love for the Dhamma. Such a bhikkhu is fit to teach the Dhamma. So every time before I, I teach, I, I try to recite that. That's why I sort of remain bowed slightly longer before a talk as I'm trying to recite that, that phrase to remember that it's not us that are teaching the Dhamma. And I, I think that 
you know, a measure of comportment and respect. The Buddha said he teaches the Dhamma respectfully, even to hunters, just as a lion respectfully gives a blow to any animal it hunts. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, none of many, most of us haven't seen lions hunt, but I really love that. And uh, another thing to say is I know some monastics who do tend to make very strict pronouncements on on YouTube uh, in response to questions. And um, I'm cautious in responding to people's questions without knowing them well too, with too much force because you don't know someone's situation all the time. And I think if that's not held delicately, you can really ruin someone's life. Um, you know, people take what we say very seriously. And I think a measure of care and comportment and gentleness in speech is really important as a monastic when you're speaking about the Dhamma. So just to say that I think those are good metrics to look to when you're um, gauging a teacher. Okay. I think we got to finish here. But Suraj, let's just finish with this question or this comment. I think that people are confused about repression versus restraint. Repression is pushing that which is unskillful and replacing it with something from the sensual realm from the five senses. Restraint, on the other hand, is taking that which is unskillful and replacing it with skillful like faith, meditation, and metta, seeing the ugliness which gives vision and knowledge of letting go. Yes, um, I think it's just really important to recollect that each of these things we're giving up, we need to be cultivating new brightness, new senses of connection, and that drive to... Uh, you know, drink or go to a party. Often it's driven by a de desire to connect. So we need to rebuild ourselves from wholesome puzzle pieces. And it takes a while and it takes patience and um, forgiveness because we do stumble. Um, and like Long Propasno said, everything I've given up has had claw marks on it. So being patient with ourselves, caring and uh, and all that. And working skillfully and creatively to find other ways towards happiness, spiritual ways. So we didn't get to everyone's questions here, but um, I think we may have to wrap up. Thank you so much everyone for joining as always. And we, as every we do every week, we'll next have a Zoom session. I'm pasting the link in the chat. Feel free to join us there for a more intimate discussion together. And um, if you can't find the link there, just go to our website, clearmountainmonastery.org and scroll down to the Wednesday evening event and you'll see a link to the Zoom there. So I hope everyone's uh, has a great Thanksgiving uh, if you celebrate Thanksgiving and if, uh, and we'll see you on Saturday, I hope. Take care. <laughs>